Welcome and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Psalms, namely Psalm 2. Uh, Last week we were in Psalm 1, this week we're in Psalm 2. Uh, But just to be clear, we're not going to go through all 150 psalms. That would take us three years. Um, But we need to grab Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 because they act as a unit for us to help us set ourselves up throughout just the book of Psalms, but also through our entire lives. And so let me read to you Psalm 2 to us, and then we'll spend some time setting up our time this morning and we'll dive in. Psalm 2 says this. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Put that on a coffee mug. Well, before we dive into that, let me kind of set up our time for us this morning. I was about seven years old and it was the first time my family had all gotten together, my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, and me, and we got into our little minivan and we went from Houston to Colorado in one swoop because my dad was not paying for a hotel room midway through. He was just gonna white knuckle that thing from Houston to Colorado, which is like over 20 hours of driving. And so my dad did with most, dads did in the 90s. He took out all of the chairs in the back. He laid a pallet down and he got a 13 inch black and white TV with a VHS player, strapped it all in with bungee cords so that we could watch our favorite Disney movies throughout that trip. And so my mom and my dad were in the front seat. My dad was driving, all his kids were in the back. And so we just watched like the Lion King like 12 times on the way up there. And as I was going up there, it dawned on me, I've never seen snow in my life at that point. Uh, I'm from Texas, I grew up in Houston, which means that I believed in snow by faith. (laughs) Because I'd never seen it, but I had an assurance of things hoped for. And so we were going up to the Rockies and I was excited. And so all of a sudden we're kind of midway through the dozenth rendition of Akuna Matata and we're in the Rockies and I decide, oh, I'm gonna look up and I'm gonna see snow and I see snow but it's not a few flakes. We're actually driving through a blizzard. And I start to freak out because I'm in the back seat and I look out every single window. And as I look out every single window, all I see is pure white all around you. You can't see anything around you. And all of a sudden this little 
seventh grade, mine started to kind of run wild. I started getting afraid, overwhelmed. It was the first time in my life that I could literally say, yeah, I almost died today because we were in the Rockies. And all I knew about the Rockies was that it was rocky. And if you swerved, especially in a blizzard, man, you could tumble, you could fall, you could die. And so I started getting really afraid because I was looking at the situation around me and I was getting overwhelmed. But I distinctly remember a moment where I looked up, not at my situation around me, but I looked up at the driver's seat, at my dad who was driving. And he was calm, he was collective, he was in control even in the midst of driving through a blizzard. And all of a sudden, though my situation didn't change, my perspective did. Because I looked at somebody who I knew loved me and loved the people that he was driving, and I didn't see chaos in his face. I saw a calmness. And so I was able to relax and go back to watching my movies as we got there safely. Now, why do I mention that to you? Because as we drive through this thing called life, we are not ultimately in control. And for many of us, as we kind of look out the windows, we just see chaos all around us, right? You see the chaos of our culture, the chaos of the world, and it feels overwhelming. It feels like it's bearing down upon us. And what we need to do in those moments, what I naturally do in my flesh in those moments is I can freak out. I can get overwhelmed. I can run to kind of my sin cycles to try to kind of cope or I can try to try to control the situation within the blizzard of the craziness of the culture around us. And what we need to do in those moments is not look outside, but look up at the one who's really in control, the one who's really guiding, the one who's really directing, the one who's in control and driving this thing called life and see how he responds in that moment. And when we do so, we'll see that he's calm, he's collective, he's in control. And though the craziness of our world may not change, our perspective can. So let me ask you, what about our world right now makes you worried? What about the culture around us feels chaotic? What is it that as you turn on the news or you're on social or wherever it is, you just kind of go, man, this just kind of feels like it's always around me and it's always pressing in. I asked a group of our men this past Thursday that question, and it was amazing to hear the response because you would think the typical, you know, making ends meet and stuff like that. What they said almost entirely collectively was that when I worry, when I feel the chaos around me, the things that hit me the most is something coming after my kids. And in an audience like this, I'm assuming that a lot of us, that would be ours. It was mine. And so they said things like, man, it's the idea that my kids would embrace a worldview that's against God and it would lead them to a place that I don't want them to go. Or my kids being pressured to have one foot in the world and one foot with God by their friends or my kids' safety with so much anger and so much animosity in this world to get today, especially against God and God's people and God's will and God's way. I just get nervous for them. And so I can resonate with that as a father who I just look at my kids and I look at the news and I go, okay, what world is my kid growing up into? And I can get worried and I can get overwhelmed. And so what is it for you? What's your blizzard? (laughs) And as you look out, it feels crazy. It feels chaotic. Well, what we do in these moments really matters. 
And I know I can so easily feel overwhelmed, feel like the culture is decaying around us and wants to come in and destroy us. So what do you do in those moments? Well, Psalm 2 is gonna answer that question. We're continuing our series through the book of Psalms and we're focusing on a handful of Psalms to kind of help us do what the Psalms are naturally designed to do, which we said last week that the Psalms are there to help us to navigate a life with God. They're there to help us worship God and they're help us to even think like God as the Psalms were the number one thing that Jesus quoted in our New Testament. And as I was thinking about it this past week, the Psalms almost act as this moment in which we are plopped into a situation. And we can resonate with the emotions and the feelings that the psalmist is in and in the situation that they're in. And we can be honest about how we would navigate that situation apart from God. But then we can see how they would navigate that conversation while they look up at God. And so that's what the Psalms are designed to do. And so Psalms 2 is gonna speak to the fears that many of us have that when we look around at the culture around us, it feels like it's decaying, yet simultaneously wants to kick down our doors and come and destroy everything we love, everything we hold dear. And so what we need to do in the midst of those moments is not look at the chaos, but to look up at the one who's in control because that's what the psalmist will do. The Psalm 2 is about a world in a state of rebellion against God and God's people. And yet what we see is not just the world rebelling, but we see God responding. And as we look up at our God, who has his hands on the wheel, we're gonna see he's calm, he's collective, and he is in control. And as we see him, it's gonna impact how we see the chaos of our culture. And so Psalm 2 isn't gonna give us best practices to change our situation. But what it's gonna do is it's gonna change our perspective. And so let's dive in. Psalm 2 begins with the world in the state of chaos. It says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And so we said it last week that the Psalms were written by real people living in a real time, living through real situations, worshiping a real God that they believed in, but didn't always understand why he would allow things to happen. And so they're worshiping them in the midst of chaos around them. And so a little history lesson right here. In this time, in this period, God had given his people a very specific plot of land in the Middle East called Israel. God had given them this piece of land because he wanted to use them to bless them so that they would be a blessing to the world. He wanted them to have life and life abundantly as they bowed their knee to the king of the universe who is God. But the reality was there was a problem here that surrounding this plot of land were other nations. And these were the superpowers of the day, Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Persia. And you can see it, that this little bitty plot of land was literally surrounded by craziness in the world, a culture that was constantly at war with God's people. That's why the psalmist begins by saying, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? These nations are surrounding God and his people. And it says here that they're plotting. Now, what's interesting is if you were here last week, this is the same word that means to meditate, Haggah. 
that in Psalm 1, it's the blessed man that Haggaz, that meditates on God's word and God's way. And as he meditates on that, it begins to dictate the course of his life that he becomes this blessed individual that's a blessing to others. But these people aren't Haggaiing on the things of God, but rather they're meditating on their plotting, they're conspiring, they're thinking all the time, how do I get rid of this guy called God and his people? They're plotting against the Lord and against his anointed. The Lord was Yahweh, God of the universe. And his anointed was the King of Israel, which was a representative of all the people. So these people are plotting. They're rolling around in their head. How do I get rid of this little God and his little people? Because they're driving me crazy. He says, let's burst our bonds apart. I wanna cast away their cords from us. These kings had power, but notice they didn't want the restraints of walking with God. They saw it as restraints. And so they're going, look, I want the power of being the king. I want the might of being the king. I want the authority of being the king, but I don't want to follow God's will and God's way. And so I'm gonna plot, I'm gonna meditate. How do I destroy God and his people? That sound familiar? It's the world we live in. None of this is new. This right here is literally three millennium old. That there's always a reality that when God's people are doing God's thing, God's way, the world will come crashing in on them. And so let me ask it again. What about our culture do you feel is bearing down on you right now? What about our culture feels chaotic? What about our world feels wildly out of place? Maybe it's the direction our country is going. Laws that certain groups wanna pass. Or maybe it's rhetoric from certain politicians. Maybe recently it's been the inflation and gas prices and just trying to make ends meet, going, man, I didn't have any say in some of the decisions that we're making that led us here, and it feels like it's bearing down on me. Maybe it's the fears that a lot of us have for our kids, their safety, the world that they're growing up into, what's being taught in their schools. Maybe it's a family that you're in that you go, man, I just feel like I was plopped in this family and nobody thinks about the things of God. Nobody acts in God's will and God's way. Nobody believes like I do. And so I just feel like every time I'm with them and every time I read what they post on social, I just feel like it's bearing down on me. It's all the time. It feels like evil is at your doorsteps and wants to destroy you. And the people of God throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia have felt this way that it's constantly felt like God has put us in a position in which the world wants to bear down on us, that it's decaying and yet it wants to destroy us. And so what do we do when the world and the culture gets chaotic? Well, what does the psalmist do? He looks up at the one who's over the chaos. He looks up at the one who's in control. In the same way that I 
was so easy as a seven-year-old to look out the windows and begin to get freaked out about the blizzard that was around us that I just felt so helpless in. The moment I looked up at my dad who loved me and wanted to have me have life and life abundantly, I could look at him and go, okay, he's in control. So how's he responding? He's calm, he's collective, he's in control. Okay, that changes my perspective in that moment. And so in this moment, we need to look up and go, okay, God, as the world is uniting, as the culture is decaying, as they're conspiring together to get together, to go against God, go against his people. God, how are you responding in this moment? Well, that's what verse four says, that God looks at all of this and laughs. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. God's response to the chaotic, crazy culture that wants to plot together to overthrow God and his people is to chuckle. Now, what in the world is that about? Well, it says that he holds them in derision. And so what that means is this, that when the people of the world conspire together to overthrow God, overthrow his people, God finds that comically ridiculous. Like when they get together and all their king's horses and all the king's men and all their philosophies and all their gender this and agenda that, and they get together and they go, hey, we're gonna swarm together and we're gonna overthrow God's will and God's way. God goes, that's cute. That's so adorable. Look at them. Oh, you got a little doctor in front of your name? Oh, that's so nice. I'm God. He laughs at the audacity that mankind can do anything to thwart his will and his way. He laughs. And then it says that he's gonna speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. And that right there should give us confidence because the things that we're afraid of, the things that stand against God and stand against his people will one day have to stand before God who is a consuming fire. And they don't get a vote. They don't get a say in his direction. He speaks to them in his wrath. And so when we look up above the chaos and we see the one who's in control, we begin to realize that the things that can terrify us will one day have to stand before an almighty God. In the midst of the world trying to overthrow God, God is not surprised, he's strong. He's not scared, he's in control. When you begin to see this rightly, it doesn't matter how loud the storm becomes, our God is in control. It's cliche, but it's cliche because it's true. That for many of us, we need to stop telling God how big our problems are and start looking at our problems and telling them how big our God is. There is a Japanese philosopher whose name was Gao Nasu, and he says an entire sea of water can't sink a ship unless it gets inside the ship. 
Similarly, the negativity of the world can't put you down unless you allow it to get inside of you. For so many of us, we've let it get inside of us. Life is hard right now and it's coming at us fast. There's all this noise, there's all this rhetoric and it feels so vile, it feels so evil. But God is saying, hey, you don't have to let that in. When you let it in, it's gonna sink you. But we as believers have an opportunity to rise above it. One of my favorite stories about Martin Luther, who's one of my heroes of the faith, he led the Reformation and just gave the word of God back to the people. But the reality of it was, was so many people wanted to see him dead out of the equation. People in the church and people in the government, they were just conspiring together and the church and the government had one thing in common. They wanted to see Luther dead because he was telling people that it's by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, And so all of a sudden, Luther, when he would let that in, he struggled with depression. And so when he let that persecution kind of get to him, he would spiral out of control and he would get down on himself. And his wife, who was a hoot, she would go and put on all black and she would walk around the house just kind of moping until Luther kind of looked over and noticed and said, what are you doing? And she goes, well, I'm mourning. You're mourning, who are you mourning? Who died? And she would go, God, God's dead. He died. And Luther, who was a passionate guy, would look up and go, wait, what? God's not dead, God's alive. He's died on that cross, he rose from the grave, he's on the throne, he is sovereign over all things. God's not dead, to which she would reply, then stop acting like it. That's a good woman. You see, when we begin to let stuff in, the the craziness around them, and it's there, it's all around us. But we have an opportunity and we have an option of whether or not we're gonna let it in us. We let it in us, it's gonna sink us. We don't, we rise above it. For so many of us, our view of God is simply too small. It's simply too small. We let the problems consume us instead of simply looking up to the one who's in control. So how do we look up? Well, it's both proactive and it's reactive. It's proactive in that we're spending time in God's word each day. We're looking at him who is good, who is gracious, who is kind, and yet simultaneously is sovereign and just and in control over all things. We're meditating upon God's word throughout the day. We're letting it inform our thoughts, which impacts our hearts, which impacts our lives. We're proactive in it, but we're also reactive in it. Like when you read the news or you see something that just kind of begins to feel like it's bearing down on you, we stop in that moment and we react to it, but not in our way, in God's way. We look up to him in those moments. I had a friend of mine this week, she's in my community group. And she said that this summer has been a little difficult with the kids at home. It's 130 degrees outside and there's not a lot of stuff to do. It's mid-July, we're going, what do we do now uh, with them? And, um, and kids are a little much right now, which everyone who has kids who are at home over the summer said, amen. amen. 
And she said in that moment, she goes, look, for a while, I've just, it's just all of a sudden, man, like the craziness around me, if one kid kind of gets in trouble, I just kind of punish them all. I'm like, everyone get out of the way. Everyone go to your room. Mom needs time to think, right? And she said, man, she listened to the message last week, just talks about meditating on the words of God. And so she began to meditate specifically on Proverbs 14, 29. It said, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is hasty in temper exalts folly. And so she said she woke up and she just rolled that through her head all day proactively. But when she started to feel like she wanted to be short with her kids, she just recited this to herself. And she was sharing that with our community group. And she just goes, guys, it made all the difference. It was such a sweet reminder to us that when we proactively and reactively look up at our God, it simply makes all the difference. And so in those moments, when you feel like the world and the culture are bearing down on you and caving in upon you, we need to be a group of people who are growing constantly and looking up above the chaos, above the insanity, above the craziness of our culture so that we can see a God who's in control and nothing scares him, nothing surprises him. He is strong and he is loving and this God has a plan. And when we begin to meditate upon the words of God, we begin to see him for who he is, but we also begin to see what he's going to do. And that gives us confidence. That gives us courage, no matter how crazy the blizzard becomes. So God has a plan and that's where Psalm two goes next. But in order to really capture it, we need to do a little Bible study one-on-one. You see, the Bible has these things throughout in them called chiasms, chiasms. You see, the Hebrew people knew that the best way to communicate information was not dictation, but rather discovery. And so Hebrew poetry has nothing to do with rhyming, which as an aside, I really do love because rhymes get lost in translation, but structure doesn't. It's almost like God wanted to communicate to all languages. So God put in his word structure that would draw our attention to discover the central truth of what he wanted us to understand. And so a chiasm is throughout your Bible and there's tons of them in the Psalms because it was a very common way for them to write poetry. So a chiasm was when the first idea and the last idea are the same, and it keeps moving towards this one central climactic idea. It's meant to draw your attention that way. And Psalm 2 is a chiasm. So it begins with saying that the world is in a state of rebellion in verses 1 and 3, but it ends with the world being called to repent. But then it moves in talking about how God responds to the world in rebellion, which is judgment. And what's interesting is in the first four uh, verses, four through five, it's the judgment of the father. But in eight through nine, it's the judgment of the son. And so this is leading us somewhere. The psalmist wants us to see the centrality of what he's trying to communicate in the midst of craziness of our culture that God will ultimately come into and judge what is God getting after? Well, we see it right in the middle that God ultimately rules and reigns. That's the center that our eye is supposed to catch up on. And so how does God rule and reign? As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And I'll tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Do you see this? 
that at the center of God's plan for the universe, in the chaos of the universe, is to send his own king to Zion, that was Jerusalem, to go upon a holy hill. And so God's plan involves a king that would go to Jerusalem that would be his only begotten son. Now, who could that be? Psalm two, we get a window into the entire plan of God for our universe that God would send his only son in the midst of the chaos. Because God right here tells us who that son is. When Jesus came, as he was being baptized, the father speaks from heaven that this is my son, the very son that would come to Jerusalem to sit upon a throne and with whom I am well pleased. God's answer to the chaos is to send his son into the middle of it. And we see here what type of king he would be. Because throughout the life of Jesus, we saw Jesus being gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And yet in the gospel of Luke, it said that his gaze was fixed on one location and that was Jerusalem on Zion and Jesus would go to Jerusalem and he would be lifted up, but not on a throne, on a cross. That's the king of the universe. What would Jesus do to his enemies? He would take their place. What would Jesus do about the wrath of God towards sin? he would take the wrath of God upon himself when he who knew no sin became sin so that we who have all shaken our fist at God in some way or another would inherit the righteousness of God when we believe in him by faith through grace. This is really good news for us because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this beloved son of God, God showed his love for us in this that while we were still sinners, not when we looked good, not when we cleaned ourselves up, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the good news is that he didn't stay dead, but he rose. We don't worship a dead Jesus. We believe that he has come to Jerusalem to be lifted up upon a cross, but that he rose from the grave is ascending to sit at the right hand of the father right now and is interceding on our behalf to him, but he will return. And so I don't care how much the nations rage, Jesus will reign forever. And what we're living in right now is a window of time in which God is giving us the ability to respond to his grace before he returns. And we have to respond to him and his justice and his judgment over us because this king will return and he will rule the nations. And that's where the plan goes next. Psalm two says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth, your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessels. The Psalm is an invitation to us, but it's also a warning to us 
the very nations that rage against God will have to stand before this God. I don't know if you've ever seen iron fight a clay pot, but iron wins every single time. There's no competition. God has no equal and we don't get to vote him in. He will return, he will rule, he will reign and he will render judgment. God has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And the first time he came was to offer an extension of grace so that we would respond to that grace, but he will come again. And when he comes again, he is no longer offering an extension of grace, but we will stand before him in judgment. So when is this all gonna happen? Well, this phrase right here, rod of iron, only shows up one other time in your Bible. It's actually three times in one book. Guess what book? It's the book of Revelation. When we read about a window of God returning, we read about a reality of Jesus coming back and Revelation 19 says this, then I saw heaven open up and behold a white horse The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name of which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's coming back. And right now we have an opportunity to respond in his grace because the first time that Jesus came, it was to take the wrath of God upon himself. But when he returns, he will dish out the wrath of God to anyone that does not bow their knee to him. A day of judgment is coming and God will render every account settled either on Jesus on the cross or an eternity in hell, every sin will be taken care of. And the good news is that in the midst of judgment, God always offers grace. He always extends grace. And so before he responds to us ultimately in judgment, he gives us an opportunity to respond to him in grace and the grace that he wants to lavish upon us. God does not delight in the death of the wicked but wants everyone to know him and to walk with him. And so in the midst of this judgment, God sends out a warning, but also an invitation to repent, to find your allegiance, not in the kings of this world or your own little kingdom yourself, but find your allegiance in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that's how the Psalm ends. It says, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, 
rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This Psalm ends with five commands. Each one is a command to repent. That as you or the world is going astray, going their own way, going their own path, we are called to be wise. There's a way that seems right to you that only ends in destruction. And so be wise, O kings, be warned because the path you're on will only end in destruction. You stand against God, you will have to stand before God and give an account and there is nowhere to hide before the Almighty. So serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, have an intimate relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, who's made a way for us lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalms two is an invitation to us, but it's also a warning that if you're against God, you will perish. But if you're in him, you will be blessed. So what do we do with all this? How does meditating on Psalm two help us? Well, as the world feels so chaotic and so crazy and crashing in upon us, as it's decaying and wants to destroy God and his people, when we look up, it changes our perspective. First, when we look up, God gives us confidence. He gives us confidence. When you realize whose team you're on, Like we have got to stop being afraid of the kittens of our culture when the lion of Judah is on our side. Or better served, we're on his side and he wins. He has no competition. He has no rival. And that begins to give you confidence. As you look up and you see your father in heaven driving this car, it doesn't matter how crazy the blizzard is, you can trust him because he is confident. He's in control and he has sent his son for you to make all things right. It gives you a confidence, but it also gives you compassion. Did you notice that the very same person who wrote Psalm 2 at the beginning is going, hey, why are the nations raging? Why are they going out of control? Why is all this stuff happening? Is the very same person at the end that's looking at the nations and saying, be warned, be wise. You little king, there's a king of kings and you need to bow to him because he's coming. And so it gives you this unbelievable compassion. And so let me remind you of something. The people of Israel were right in the center of this chaotic world that was around them. And yet in Exodus 19, God tells them, you will be a kingdom of priests. Priests were individual in your Bible that would connect the world around us to God. They were put in a strategic place in which God knew the entire world would feel like it's caving in on them. And he would tell them, as they're coming down on you, I want you to love them. And so question, City Bridge, what if the very place that God has put you, 
where you feel the most pressure coming in around you is actually purposeful. What if the place that you feel the most chaos is actually the place that God is inviting you to extend the most compassion? What if, as you think about what they're teaching in schools, and that feels like it's ever present around you, what if that is God's invitation to you to be more involved in the schools? What if that family member that's posting all those stuff and it just kind of feels like it's all around you, what if that's God's invitation to you to be in the middle of the chaos and to love? and to extend compassion, to love even our enemies. You see, when we look at that God, it gives us a confidence, but it also gives us compassion. And what we need now is just a bit of courage. And that's what God gives us next. Now, how do I know that? Well, because when the early church saw the risen Jesus, they couldn't stop telling people about it the very same people that killed Jesus, they would go up and boldly proclaim that Jesus did die, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. And in this moment, a lot of their leaders started getting arrested, started getting thrown in jail, started getting beaten and whipped, killed. And as they were released, guess what Psalm they sang? Psalm 2. that as the world was caving in on them, they looked up and they saw a God that was above the chaos. And when they did that, if you read Acts 4, what you see is all of a sudden they begin to be reminded how sovereign their God is. And then they leave that moment singing Psalm 2, courageously speaking to the very same people that just killed their Lord. Because when you look up at Jesus, It gives you confidence, it gives you compassion, but it also gives you courage to speak the very message that needs to be spoken to the chaotic world around us. So what do we speak? The answer for them 3,000 years ago and the answer for us today is the same. We speak the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that a king has come and has extended to us grace. And a great way to go to unpack the gospel is Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Many believe that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 is simply one psalm broken into two parts. Because what you see at the very beginning of Psalm 1 is the heart of God for his people. He wants his people to be blessed. And yet there's a way that seems right to us and all of us have gone our own way. But God's desire is for you to be like a tree of life to be blessed so that you can bless others as you know him and walk with him. But all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have been like those nations that rebel against God. And yet God's solution to our rebellion is his own son who would come into Jerusalem, be hung upon a cross, die, raised from the grave, but then he would return. And that we live in this window of opportunity to respond in his grace before we respond to him in his judgment. And so God is inviting us back in to be wise, to be warned, 
to have an intimate relationship with this Jesus, lest we perish, because he doesn't want that for us. You see, this is the gospel. Psalm 1 begins with the blessed man. And did you notice? It ends with where blessing is truly found. It's found in Christ alone. And so I don't care how crazy the culture is. Our God will rule. He will reign. So we can look up at him. And when we do so, it gives us confidence. It gives us compassion. And it gives us courage to go and tell a world of a king who has come, who has given his life, that we might find life in him. Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. To learn about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at citybridgecc. See you next time.